So I'm afraid those of you who have come here for the next installment of this gripping story are going to be disappointed. Today I want to step back and consider the kind of vision that the Buddha and his followers would have worked out. And I feel that this probably was done in the most concentrated way during the 18 years at Savati or Shravasti. And I hope you've found that on your map. It's the northwest part of the map. Now, again, I do need to bring back this question of what is the value in terms of the teaching and the practice to know all of this historical detail about the Buddha and his times. I think it allows us to put the teachings into a much more humanized perspective. There's a tendency in all religions, and Buddhism is not an exception here, to somehow elevate the spiritual stature and quasi-perfection of the early community the more that we become distant from it in time. And there's very much a tendency to assume sometimes that Sariputta and Moggallana and Kasapa and Ananda, that these were somehow spiritual super-beings who had capacities and a kind of... um, purity of mind and spirit that is far removed from anything that we might imagine as inhering within ourselves. But as we rediscover the details of these men and women's lives embedded in their own social, political, economic and geographical time, I think we come closer and closer to discovering that these are people just like ourselves. Recall, for example, what sort of men and women would have belonged in this early community um, that we're describing. Most of them would have received virtually no education at all. They would not have been literate, the very notion of literacy, reading and writing, being absent in that period. They would have had no schooling. They may have memorized or been familiar with certain Brahminical or Upanishadic texts, but beyond that, their religious and spiritual education um, would have gone no further. These are men and women who, in many respects, would have led a life tied very much to the seasonal cycles that inform and dictate agrarian um, economies. True, there would have been some, such as Sariputta, Moggallana, Kasapa particularly, who would have come from um, the priestly caste and would have been more steeped in the philosophy, in the theory of religion, in spiritual practice, But many of them, and particularly when we think of the number of Shakyans who are now forming the core of the community and how the community is shifting away from Magadha, which is the real 
sort of focus and center of civilization at this period towards the more um, uh, less developed, I feel, area of Kosala, then we find a community of, of relatively simple and ordinary men and women struggling to find meaning and truth in their lives. Again, we've already pointed out how the Buddha sometimes gives a discourse and almost immediately people gain realization. We might think of this as a kind of overinflated um, religious rhetoric. The Buddha was such an incredible person that he only had to say a few words and everybody became enlightened. Or we can take it more as it stands and that is that what he was communicating was something that was genuinely accessible and within people's reach. It's very often the, um, the strategy we find in, re- in the creation of religious institutions that over time the priestly elite becomes further and further removed from the common man and woman who would constitute the flock, as it were, the supporters or the devotees of that tradition. And this is always a kind of tension we find in religious movements. In Buddhism, it seems to have reached certain critical points of, um, of dysfunction that led to an actual revolution within its own ranks. I think perhaps one of the best examples of this is in the origins of Zen. That when Buddhism came into China, um, it came as a very developed philosophical, scholarly movement. And yet at a certain point, this extreme of, of abstraction and priestcraft gave rise to a counter-movement, very often amongst the ordinary people who sought to just come back to that primary act of sitting beneath a tree. And the great early Chan or Zen masters have that kind of earthy quality that I think we also encounter when we go back to the historical early community at the time of the Buddha himself. Now this is always a difficult tension to work within. Is enlightenment something very, very close that we just somehow can't quite get, or is it really something that we will not arrive at without years or lifetimes or eons of effort? I suspect the truth lies somewhere in between the two. When we look at the early community, therefore, we find increasingly that the Buddha is not someone who renounced the worldly life and then went off and lived in the comfort and isolation of of a monastic retreat. Not at all. We find that after his awakening, he immediately goes to the major urban center of his time, engages with the king, Bimbisara, returns home, intervenes in a political dispute that's threatening to um, emerge in some violent conflict in Shakya, He ordains women for the first time ever in India. He then is supported by a banker who takes him 
to Shravasti, the capital of his own realm. And he then has these ongoing interactions with King Pasenadi, who we saw yesterday. I don't have the impression that the Buddha is someone who has left the world behind. He is deeply implicated in it. In other words, we see that these teachings, these, the practice of mindfulness, the practice of absorption, the um, cultivation of a path, is not something that occurs in some rarefied spiritual reality, but is something that occurs in the midst of the world's conflicts, crises, tensions, deceptions. And as we concluded yesterday, we left the Buddha somehow complicit in the deception of his cousin Mahanama. There's no um, suggestion anywhere in the text that the Buddha sought to intervene or sought to inform the king that he was being tricked. It seems as that the whole Shakyun family, although I don't think they in any sense intended this to be the case, were nonetheless, by the dint of circumstances, the relations between these different communities found themselves caught up in a lie. Now, fortunately, Vasaba, the daughter of the slave woman by Mahanama, married King Pasenadi and very shortly afterwards gave birth to a son. You can almost hear a collective sigh of relief coming from <laughs> Jetta's Grove. <laughs> and this son um, was called Vidudaba or Virudaka in Sanskrit and we hear little of him but it seems that his birth probably coincided roughly with the beginning of the Buddha's long stay in Shravasti so this Shravasti and the Jetta's Grove particularly, of course, the Jetta's Grove, was very much an extraordinary opportunity, a moment of uh, peace and tranquility, of stability, in which uh, the Buddha and his disciples were able to work consistently over a sustained period of time in working out their vision of the person the human person, and also, I will argue, human society. And that's what I want to look at today. I want to look at the Buddha's vision of self and society. Now, perhaps the first point to begin is to see how the Buddha sought to radically redefine the key notions of identity that prevailed while he was alive. And perhaps the first one is the idea of what it means to be an Aryan. Remember that the Buddha and most of the um, people we encounter in this story are descendants of the Aryan invaders who came down into India about 1,500 years before the Buddha was born and settled in the Gangetic Basin. And Buddhism is, as it were, an example of the flowering of Aryan culture. 
the first flowerings are in the Vedas and then the Upanishads and then we have the Buddha, we have Mahavir, the Jains and others. Now, Aryan, in its original sense, um, meant the, the noble ones, the uplifted ones. And it was primarily a racial concept. But the Buddha turned this idea around. And so he spoke, for example, of the Kattu Arya Satka, the four noble truths. He uses this very word Aryan to describe his primary vision of what a human life can be. But he's not using it in any sense racially, but he's turning it into a spiritual idea. It's somewhat confusing to say the noble truths, because it's difficult really to understand to what extent craving, for example, can be noble. The noble truth of the origin of suffering, craving, ignorance, to what extent are these things meaningfully noble? As my Tibetan teacher explained this, the quality of nobility does not inhere in the truths themselves, but in the person who has realized those truths. So there's something about fully knowing suffering letting go of craving, experiencing that stopping and creating a path that ennobles the person. The noble person now is not one who happens to be born of a certain race, but one who has internalized and realized in their daily lives a certain body of truths. So in other words, these noble truths, these ennobling truths, as I prefer to call them, are things that somehow give human life a certain dignity, a certain nobility. So the Buddha sees his teaching as the possibility of ennoblement or dignity for all people, all men, all women, who are capable, and he doesn't exclude anybody, except slaves, that's another problem actually, but we might come back to that later, from being able to realize these truths. So this, I feel, is a good point to begin here. But what is it that is ennobled? What is it that is dignified? Because the Buddha is also saying part of this process entails realizing there is no self. So what does it mean, therefore, to say that a no-self can become ennobled? And this is a question that's come up again and again in the little notes you've been leaving me, and this is what I want to address. I feel that the Buddhist tradition has given uh, really very little emphasis to the nature of a selfless person. The emphasis has been so strongly weighted onto no self that there has been little room or even little interest in developing a theory, an understanding of the functional, living, unique, 
individual that exists in this world. In other words, the person. So we have to be careful here. When we say no self, we don't mean no self, if you see what I mean. We're not, um, there's no suggestion, I feel, um, although except in some, I mean, there are Buddhists who would argue this, that the, to know no self does not mean to eliminate or to delete any sense at all of personal identity or uniqueness or distinction. In fact, I think I could even argue the opposite, that no self, seeing through the fictions of a fixed, permanent, um, alienated, isolate ego, is what allows us to become what we potentially are capable of becoming. Now, I'm going to cite some passages uh, from the early texts to try to illustrate what I mean. Now, this is a very famous passage. We find it in uh, the Dhamma, uh, in the uh, Sutta Nipata, and you'll have a reading list at the end. This is the Buddha speaking. No one is born a Brahmin. A Brahmin is a Brahmin because of what he does. A farmer is a farmer because of what he does. And a craftsman is a craftsman because of what he does. A merchant, a servant, a thief, a soldier, a priest or a king. Each of them is what he is because of what he does. Now this is close to what in, in modern philosophy we would call a performative conception of self. Remember in the Buddha's time, one's identity as a person was very strictly defined by one's status at birth. If you were born a Brahmin, that's who you were. If you were born a merchant, that's who you were. And that's what you would be or become. The Buddha seeks to overthrow all of that and instead to recognize that a person um, is not something that is, a self is not something that is just a given, that exists, that somehow inside ourselves, tucked away somewhere, some real essence, but rather a self or a person is something that is created. And it's created by the choices you make, the actions you perform, the things you do, the tasks you accomplish, the work you perform, the things you say. It's through your actions that your person, your personality, your character emerges. Now this, I feel, is again somewhat akin to the notion of creating a path. You are opening up through the course of your life, through the actions and choices you make, a way of being, a way of, as Jung would say, individuating. You are becoming more uh, distinctive as a person in your own right. So he sees the concept of self very much as a process of becoming rather than a fixed thing. And it's in this sense, I think, 
we can understand the compatibility, in fact, the necessary conjunction of no-self, which is a denial of the fact that there is some kind of essential me tucked in here somewhere, and the idea of becoming a self, creating a self, becoming through one's acts, one's choices, one's behavior, into the person that one's potentiality in this human organism allows to be possible. Now, this is a very different way of thinking than was current at his time. Now, there's another passage which I feel is is, is very um, uh, telling on this point. It's the 80th verse in the Dhammapada. And that says, and I don't have a copy of it, so I'm reciting it from memory. He says, just as a farmer carves channels in his fields to irrigate them, just as a fletcher assembles and constructs an arrow, just as a carpenter fashions and shapes a piece of wood, so does the wise person control the self. Now, I first read that in Pali, and it says, Atanam Dhammati Pandita. Atanam is the accusative form of the, of the noun self. Dhammati means to tame or to control or to work with, and Pandita is the subject, the wise person. In other words, the self, the person, the individual, stands in the same relationship to its verb and subject, as does the field for the farmer, the arrow for the fletcher, and the piece of wood for the carpenter. In other words, the Buddha sees that what we are, our body-mind complex, our individual person, that which has come about through the different and diverse conditions that have given rise to this, this being, that this is, as it were, the raw material, the, the stuff of our life which we are, as it were, called upon to transform. And again, the, 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 the imagery, uh, the metaphors, I think are very telling. On the one hand, if we think of the self as like a field, it's... Uh, It offers us a range of possibilities of allowing, through irrigation, the waters of our life to begin to flow, to begin to nourish us. A field is, in this society, a place that gives rise to nourishment, to food, to rice, to millet, to sugarcane, or whatever it is. In other words... What we are is something that needs somehow to be opened up, to be watered, in order that we can grow. An arrow. Now, an arrow is something that's made of diverse parts. There's the the, the barb, there's the feathers at the end, there's the piece of wood. All of this somehow has to be put together in a particular way. Likewise, our Our bodies, our feelings, our perceptions, our thoughts, our emotions can somehow be 
assembled, arranged, uh, reconstructed, redefined in such a way that we produce uh, another kind of person, another kind of being in this world. Or a piece of wood that can be shaped and molded and crafted and made into something very beautiful and very functional. The Buddha seems to compare the person to all of these things, the self, the word, atta, self, atanam, work on that. So you have the sense here not in, I mean quite explicitly, the Buddha is not saying, you know, negate this self. He's saying work with it, transform it, fashion it, um, reconstruct it, toy with it. And again, the text is absolutely explicit. Now we find, I think, a similar um, ideas running not only in Buddhist philosophy but through many works of contemporary thought as well. And the whole sense of the, um, we might say, the, the ambiguity of self um, is explored particularly, I feel, um, in a lot of contemporary literature. I'm going to quote some passages here from the Czech writer Milan Kundra. He says, All novels are concerned with the enigma of self. He describes the novel as a meditative interrogation, his words, um, of this self. And then he says, The more powerful the lens of the microscope observing the self, the more the self and its uniqueness elude us. And he has a character in his book, The Unbearable Lightness of Being, called Teresa. And he has her look into a mirror and wonder how long it would take for her to vanish if her nose was to grow by one millimeter a day. (laughs) And if her face no longer looked like Teresa, the author asks, would Teresa still be Teresa? Where does the self begin and end? And this, I think, to me very beautifully, um, points to precisely this, this ambiguous nature of self. On the one hand, it's something that is entirely self-evident to us. But as soon as we begin to probe it and to analyze it, we can't find anything. So when, you know, you were asking, you know, when the Buddha says... Um, Uh, realize that you are not your forms, not your feelings, not your perceptions. What does he mean by you? Which is a very uh, sensible question to ask. That very question, though, could betray a certain kind of reified thinking, namely that every word, like you or he or she, has to refer to some kind of thing in the world. But when we turn as Kundera says, the microscope of attention onto this self, onto this me, it becomes increasingly hard, if not impossible, to actually pin down. I mean, a very simple example. This is a pen, right? Can you see it? This is a pen, a ballpoint pen. And again, although this is much, much simpler than a human being, obviously, once we start playing around with it, we find that even something as simple as the idea of a pen, 
begins to become problematic. This is a pen. I've taken the top off. Is this a pen? Probably you'd all say yes. You can actually, you can reply if you like. <laughs> now let's, for example, so let's, do we all agree that this is a pen? Yes. I've now taken this bit out. Is that a pen? Is that a pen? This is a pen? You mean I could go into a store and ask for a pen and they'd give me a... An, this is actually an empty refill. <laughs> okay, let's imagine it's a full refill. Is it a pen? It, well, okay, my point is made. We can't, we can't even agree on this. <laughs> what a pen is. So I think that points to... <laughs> how when we say, well, what is the self, or what is the you, you can begin to see the problem. It's not something that we can so readily identify once we begin to ask what it is. Now, there are other... I think there are a whole range of of ideas in the early teachings that are very suggestive of how non-self frees us to become a person. I've already given those particular examples, but look at how the way the Buddha uses, uh, understands the word karma. Now again, karma at his time would have been understood as all of those previous actions from former lifetimes, n- numberless going back in time, Um, that somehow have caused you to be born as the person you are now. That's your karma. But when the Buddha was asked, what is karma? He always gave the same answer, and he said, karma is intention. He seems to, again, take the word that is being used in his culture in a very um, clear-cut way, much as he uses the word Arya and Brahmin, and he turns it around. Or we saw earlier how he takes a word like the unconditioned or the deathless and turns it into the absence of hate, the absence of greed, the absence of delusion. So likewise with the word karma, instead of seeing it as a kind of fatalistic force that causes the world to be the way it is, he sees it primarily as choice, intention, what it is that moves you to say something or to do something. So his, he, he doesn't entirely abandon the former notion of karma, but he shifts the attention to what it is that we can actually do with this idea. In other words, each person has the capacity to make choices, to make decisions, to intend things that will lead to actions that will be part of the process of creating, evolving, transforming who they are. Now another passage that I've also found very helpful concerns some injunctions he gave to his monks. And this is, again, a fairly... um, 
uh, well, it's almost a stock passage, really. You find it throughout the Pali texts. And he says, Wander forth, O monks, for the welfare of the multitude, for the happiness of the multitude, out of compassion for the world, for the good welfare and happiness of gods and humans. And let no two go the same way. Now, it's that last sentence I find interesting. He, 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 he's encouraging his followers to uh, find their own way in the world and not to somehow go in little clusters and groups or let alone a big sort of mass movement of some kind, but rather to internalize and embody these ideas, these truths, these insights, these teachings, and then one's task is somehow to head off into the world itself, to create, as it were, or to follow a path on one's own. And again, I suspect this is very much tied in with his ideas of creating or developing or evolving a sense of personhood, a sense of self. So we can see, again, ideas such as impermanence, ideas such as contingency, the dropping away of any kind of absolute ground which might give us a sense of a permanent identity. All of that is either discarded or else it's simply not discussed. It's not considered to be relevant to his process. And what we find in what might appear to some of us as a rather kind of scary, if not potentially nihilistic, empty space, we find um, the opening up of all kinds of new possibilities. And it seems to me that this is the vision he had that each person was capable of achieving. The emphasis, as I've already mentioned, but it bears repeating, is often put on the notion of, of no self, of somehow deleting something. But we have to see those uh, teachings in the context of these other texts that suggest that that is merely um, a strategy whereby to be able to live more totally and more fully, and again, as we saw yesterday, in which one is no one becomes independent of others i think this is a very interesting idea that the stream entrant the one who enters the path is then achieves independence from others again a notion of autonomy that one's life is now grounded not in the assumptions or the convictions of one's society or of one's religious belief but rather in one's own direct experience of one's own suffering, the origins of that suffering, and the space opened up when that craving, that grasping stop, even momentarily, allowing the possibility of a path. Now the Buddha was not only concerned with the individual person, but he was also concerned with a vision of the kind of society in which such a person could optimally flourish. And perhaps the most famous example of this 
is also found in the Vinaya text, in the monastic discipline, where he compares his community to an ocean. And he says, just as an ocean, or he says, just as all the rivers uh, pour into the ocean, and once they're in the ocean, they lose their distinction. You can't speak of the Yamuna or the Ganges or the Sutlej anymore. It's just water. In the same way, he says, that the different castes, the Brahmins, the warriors, the merchants, the laborers, that these rivers, as it were, when they pour into his Sangha, his community, they lose their distinction. In other words, he's envisioning a classless community. Now, again, Sangha, unfortunately, has often come to be identified with the body of religious professionals. And sometimes you hear people say, well, we're going to offer some dana to the Sangha, meaning the monks and the nuns. And that's how, in a way, the term has come now to be used. But even in those traditions, and certainly in the earlier texts, we find the word Sangha inclusive of um, anyone who has achieved the experience of stream entry. And this is technically called the Arya Sangha, the noble community, in distinction from the Bhikkhu Sangha or the Bhikkhuni Sangha. So the Buddha has uses this word Sangha in a range of ways. But what lies at the heart of the community, the Sangha, is not uh, people who have adopted a certain lifestyle. In fact, you could have a monk or a nun who are not stream entrants um, and thereby are not technically a true members of the community. Yet you could have a layman or a laywoman, of which there are many, many examples in the texts, who are stream entrants, or non-returners, or once-returners, and, um, but are not monks or nuns. So the, the, the core um, uh, value that constitutes participation in this community is a quality of experience and insight and self-transformation. So the community, in the broader sense includes monks and it includes nuns and lay men and lay women. This is sometimes called the Great Assembly. And it seems to me that the Sangha, in that wider sense, and in the sense of being rooted primarily in transformative experience, is an attempt to create the microcosm of a greater society in the world. That the Sangha... I feel, was established as a kind of model for what human society could be. So, on the one hand, it dissolves all class distinctions, and the other quality that he, well, there's several qualities he mentions, but the next quality he mentions, he says, just as this ocean is pervaded by the taste of salt, so is my teaching pervaded by the taste of freedom. So this is a classless, free society. And again, the freedom 
is not some abstract idea, but it's a freedom from craving, attachment, hatred, greed, fear, delusion. And once one is no longer hindered by such attachments, such cravings, one finds the possibility of being free to create yourself and also being free in conjunction with others to create another kind of world. It's also, I think, instructive, and again here I'm talking more about the, the monks and the nuns who clearly, you know, in Jetta's Grove would have been the primary um, listeners and uh, practitioners of what he was uh, talking, is that his monks and nuns um, were accorded by the standards of the time a high degree of social mobility. They were um, allowed to go into the homes of the lay supporters to receive meals, to receive gifts of cloth, for example. Um, They were encouraged, as we've seen, to wander through the world for the welfare of the multitude, as the texts say. Um, They were not constrained by any uh, dietary restrictions. They were allowed to eat whatever was given to them, including meat and fish, provided that that meat or fish had not been explicitly killed for them. In other words, if a monk goes into a layperson's house and the layperson says... Uh, well, your lunch will be ready in a minute, and then goes out the back and you hear a flapping of wings and the chopping of an axe, then no, that is um, not something to be eaten. But if it's simply meat that's available on the market, then that's fine. And it seems, and again, we'll see some of the implications of this tomorrow, but it seems that this somehow gave his uh, community a much greater interaction with the wider society than could well have been the case with comparable non-Orthodox groups of the time. So once more, it's suggestive of a certain social vision and one that he wishes his followers to embody in their interactions with the world. Now, another quality of his sangha, of his community, is that he modelled it on the kind of government that he grew up in, in Shakya. Now, Shakya, as we've already pointed out, was not a kingdom. And Siddhartha was not a prince. And there's an enormous problem in assuming that, because it makes it very difficult to understand the actuality of his, his social world. Although monarchies were emerging, and as we've seen in Magadha and in Kursala, great kings, great powerful autocratic and tyrannical rulers were very much on the scene at this point, Shakya, and perhaps even more importantly, Veshali, the Vajian Republic, so-called, were the kinds of society that the Buddha sought to emulate in his community. He was effectively a republican, not in the contemporary American sense of the word, (laughs) but a person who 
um, believe that a society should organize itself through, um, uh, th- through assembly, through representation, and even through voting. There's a system in the Vinaya of handing out voting tickets that although during his lifetime he clearly saw himself as the person in charge, as it were, he did not envisage a successor. He saw the Dhamma as what would guide people's lives after his death. And one of the words, one of the meanings of the word Dhamma is law. And in other words, what he taught, he saw as a kind of law. In other words, a set of internally coherent and consistent values, um, ideas, practices, disciplines that were adequate to govern not only an individual person's life, but also to govern a society. In the first instance, his community, but in a wider sense, the society itself. Now in Vaishali, um, which we've mentioned several times, it's where, for example, his mother and his stepmother was, came to be um, taken into the community. Vaishali was the capital of the last surviving republican society. It's said that there was an assembly hall in Vaishali that could seat 7,000 raja. One of the reasons we have a problem around king, the Buddha was a prince, his father was a king, is because his father was a raja, and we think raja means king. That's the problem, it doesn't. Raja means something like uh, headman, uh, local chief, um, party boss, something like that. But it doesn't mean king. The term for king, as we've heard repeatedly when he addresses Pasenadi, he says, great king, Maharaja. Raja doesn't imply kingship at all. So in Vaishali, there were said to be 7,000 Raja in the assembly. You can't have 7,000 kings, clearly. In other words, the society was governed by representatives from the leading families, presumably, who would meet together and discuss the affairs of state and arrive at either a consensus or, in many cases, probably a vote that would determine what would happen. And that's precisely how he saw his own sangha as as operating. In other words, an assembly of equals who would decide their affairs um, communally and who would not be um, under the uh, control or the command of a leader. So after his death, he saw his sangha as being leaderless, but governing its affairs communally according to the Dhamma. We also have a sense of how this community is one that is governed by the imperative of compassion and empathy. Now, there's a very beautiful passage. Again, it's from the Vinaya, 
a lot of what I've been uh, discussing, in fact, is found in the vinaya, in the monastic rule, um, which are not so easily available in English translation. They do exist, but you won't find them published by wisdom publications. This is a passage that I think is a very striking one. A monk was sick with dysentery, the text says, and lay fouled in his own urine and excrement. And the Buddha came to his lodging with Ananda and asked him why no one was taking care of him. And the monk says, the other monks don't care for me because I do nothing for them. And so the Buddha and his attendant Ananda washed the monk, they cleaned him up, they lifted him and placed him on a bed and made sure he was comfortable. And then they went to speak to the other monks. And the Buddha asks these monks, why are you not caring for this guy? And they say, well, he doesn't do anything for us. (laughs) Why should we do anything for him? (laughs) And then the Buddha says, monks, you have no father or mother who might tend to you. If you do not tend to one another, who will tend to you? Whoever would tend to me should tend to the sick. Now, I personally find that this passage is more um, moving and more pertinent to the issue of compassion than all of the grandiose vows of attaining enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings that we find in later Mahayana texts. Because here we have an explicit, empathetic identification with a specific sick person. Not all sentient beings here, but this monk who is lying fouled in his own urine and excrement. That's the point. And it reminds me very much of uh, Matthew 25. Um, in other words, uh, uh, Christ is, is talking to his uh, disciples and saying, you know, uh, I, I can't, I'm not going to go through them. Actually, I have it here, I think. That's right, yeah. Uh, when Jesus describes the final reckoning on the day of the last judgment, he identifies himself with every suffering person. And he depicts himself as saying to them, For I was hungry and you gave me meat, I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in, naked and you clothed me, I was sick and you visited me, I was in prison and you came to me. Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of these least of my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Now that line is very close to this idea of the Buddha, which predates this gospel by 500 years. Whoever would tend to me would tend to the sick. Now this is a passage that's not the Buddhist passage here. It's kind of tucked and hidden away in the Vinaya, and it's not a point that's strongly developed in the early Buddhist tradition. But I feel it's a very um, crucial passage in that it points to the Buddha's recognition that in the care of the oppressed and the sick, the suffering, you are actually caring for, in a metaphoric sense, your own awakening and your own enlightenment. Because as we've seen, it's through fully knowing suffering that this path begins. And that's not just about my suffering in this body here, 
although that might be where you start. But as you begin to peel away the anesthetic layers of ego, you open up more and more to an empathetic recognition of the suffering of the other. And that doesn't mean the other in some abstract sense, but it means the person who's lying on the ground fouled in their own urine and excrement. That's where compassion begins, in that specific moment. So we have, therefore, a community of empathy, a community that realizes that Buddha is actually there in the pain and the suffering of other people. And that is the way to not only compassion, but also to wisdom. Now, in spite of all of this, this vision of society, I don't think the Buddha was in any sense a political revolutionary. He was not, I think, sitting there in the Jetta's Grove plotting to overthrow King Persenody. I don't think he would have stood much of a chance. But he has this idea of what he calls the Dhamma Raja, the the Dhamma King. And such, it seems as though he recognizes that, whether he likes it or not, the day of monarchy has arrived. Power, political power, and its implicit social power lies in the hand of these emerging monarchs. And I think this is one reason why he takes so much uh, care to somehow be involved with them because he realizes that if society is ever going to transform in the way that he envisions it, it will probably have to be done through the example of a great king who will have the power to put into practice what the Buddha is teaching. And as we know from history, this is effectively what happened with the king or emperor Ashoka. But that's another story. But I'll leave that there uh, for today. Um, And, of course, we can continue to discuss some of these points this afternoon. But I think it's useful to get a sense of this broader vision that contains the sorts of exercises and practices we're doing here because I don't think those exercises and practices can be isolated from the vision of what a person can become and what a society can become. In other words, so-called engaged Buddhism is not a kind of optional extra that you can choose or not choose to follow, but it seems to be built in to the very core of what the Buddha was initially teaching. This talk was given by Stephen Batchelor at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on October 26, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio.